Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Christine Lamberson. Uh, this is New Books in History. Hello, my name is Christine Lamberson. Uh, this is New Books in History, and today I'll be speaking with Richard Schrader, uh, who is a professor at the um, Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. And today we'll be talking about his new book, which is called The Foundation of the CIA, Harry Truman, the Missouri Gang, and the Origins of the Cold War. And it's just come out with the University of Missouri Press. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for speaking with us. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah, me too. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book. I've been excited to talk to you today about it. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how you came to be interested in writing this book? Sure, I'd be delighted to. I started off in school and in graduate school with the thought that I was going to become a historian. But then um, life intervened, and after spending a couple of years in the Army during the Vietnam War, I decided that I really preferred to be a practitioner rather than a scholar. And so I joined the Central Intelligence Agency and spent, as a practical matter, the next almost 50 years as an intelligence officer. But for the last 20 years, I've also been an adjunct professor at Georgetown University teaching intelligence courses in the School of Foreign Service. And that experience of interacting with students and interacting with the general public indicated to me that while there's a great interest in national intelligence, and especially in the CIA, there's also an awful lot of uh, misunderstanding, suspicion, and even outright hostility to the organization and to the general issue of national security uh, as it pertains to strategic intelligence. So what I wanted to do in this book is kind of give the general public and sort of informed but not professionally focused civilians some idea as to where we came from and where we are today. Uh, I was driven in part by Harry Truman's own uh, aphorism that the only thing new in the world is history you don't know. And it seems to me that there are an awful lot of folks who don't know an awful lot about American intelligence or the CIA, and I wanted to fill that gap if I could. So let's start by talking a little bit about those foundations. And I want to talk a little bit about 
why people are misinformed as well. Um, but your book talks a lot about why there was such a need for something like the CIA and a more permanent intelligence gathering institution. So could you tell us a little bit about that? What was intelligence like before this? And why was this new institution needed? It's an interesting question because it's not a question that would be asked in any other advanced Western country or or the developed country. Everybody else sort of assumes as a matter of course that, of course, uh, countries are going to practice intelligence because at its basis, intelligence is nothing more than in the words of another CIA historian, Mike Warner, secret state activity to understand or influence foreign entities. So the the main motivation for countries is to try to understand what's going on in the rest of the world, particularly what's going on in issues that can threaten a state. And the United States, for basically the first 150 years of our life, really didn't have to worry about external influences very much. And we were able to focus inwardly on what we were doing and how we were developing the United States. Didn't have to worry about too much about what was going on in the rest of the world. And of course, that changed. Uh, toward the end of the 19th century with the development of European uh, empires, but also most importantly with the development of industrial technology, which led to the first generation of super weapons. And in the 1880s, that was battleships that could actually threaten the United States in a serious way because we hadn't been threatened since the War of 1812, where the British captured and burned Washington, D.C. So going into World War II, what was the United States really doing about this absence? I mean, by this point, the United States is getting involved in its second war um, in Europe or second world war. So how are we dealing with our lack of intelligence? Yeah, another one of the themes that I have is that as Harry Truman said, there may not be anything new in the world but history. But the problem in the United States is we seem always to have to relearn the same lessons over and over again. And as soon as a crisis passes, we forget whatever it was we learned in the last crisis. And that was perfectly illustrated, I think, between the First World War and the Second World War. Because during the First World War, the United States, because it was allied with Great Britain, really got a advanced tutorial on a lot of national security issues, particularly intelligence. And we did intelligence pretty well in the First World War, not only human intelligence using uh, officers like uh, military attachés or naval attachés, but we were also very good in communications intelligence. And one of the classic uh, stereotypes following the First World War is the statement by the Secretary of State, Arthur Stimson, that gentlemen don't read other people's mail. And the 
practical effect of that was that in the 1920s, basically, the United States shut down a lot of our communications, intelligence, and other intelligence resources. So by the 1930s, when the world was threatened with very aggressive authoritarian governments, both in Germany and Italy, but also in Japan, we were really not at all prepared to play the uh, leading role that our industrial power and our wealth gave us a responsibility for. In other words, France and, and England were kind of stepping up as global powers, and the United States was not. And my story really starts in the 1930s with the people who would create a, a modern um, global intelligence service in and around the Second World War, and then would carry that that new development forward after the war into the Cold War. So that's what I'm trying to do in my book, is point out how we came to have what we now have. Mm-hmm. And what do you think from your book um, would surprise people, right? You talked a little bit about that general public who might have a little hostility or a little suspicion towards the CIA. What do you think would surprise them about what intelligence gathering looked like during this period? I think what people would be surprised with today, and of course, right this minute, we're talking in the middle of a government shutdown where nobody seems to be able to talk to anybody else about anything. But I think what would surprise people today was how much consensus there was across all aspects of American society and American leadership. And the consensus was pretty easy to acquire during the Second World War when we had been attacked, after all, and we had very obvious enemies. But after the Second World War as well, that consensus continued. And even though there was certainly partisan politics uh, in the war, before the war, there was a lot of opposition to Roosevelt. There was a lot of uh, internecine fighting within the government about what the proper role of the government should be and who should manage different aspects of uh, national security, still everybody kind of agreed on the general guidelines. In fact, there's a very interesting anecdote from um, Truman's experience in the Second World War. Harry Truman came to the Senate initially in the 1930s as the, um, the sort of the... Um, man who represented in some ways a corrupt political machine in Kansas City, the Pendergast machine, which was the Democratic uh, machine in western Missouri. And in fact, 
initially he was called the senator from Pendergast rather than the senator from Missouri to imply that he was corrupt as well. And that's sort of why I use the expression the Missouri gang in talking about the people he surrounded himself with. But when the war started, he immediately took a real leadership role in investigating the war production activities in the United States. And he would go into large corporations, many of which were booming because of the need to build up resources and weapons for uh, the war effort. And he looked for profiteering uh, in these companies. He looked for inefficiencies or corruption, but he also turned his focus on the unions to make sure that the workers were pulling their loads as well. And one of the interesting things Harry Truman did in leading this committee was he insisted that all of the committee reports would have to be unanimous. In other words, all the senators on his committee, not only the Democrats, but the Republicans, would all have to agree on his reports. And somebody asked one of the Republican senators, well, how is it possible that you could always achieve this consensus and you could always achieve this agreement? And the senator responded, well, it's not hard at all when the facts are known. Now, that was in the 1940s. And I would just pose to your listeners whether today anybody can agree on anything. And certainly whether anybody can agree on a commonly accepted set of facts. This course is a challenge for historians now. How are, how are we going to present things when even such simple matters as what is a fact or what is true or not true is open to partisan debate? So I think people might be surprised by that. Absolutely. That's a really different time. Um, yeah, it was in a lot of ways. <laughs> the one we're living in, for sure. Um, so thinking about some of those um, agreed upon facts, what is it that's coming out of World War II that leads Truman and others to come to an agreement that they're wanting a more permanent body? How do they, or, or what What's different going on out of World War II than out of these previous experiences out of World War I, for example, when they decided that gentlemen weren't going to read each other's mail anymore? Yeah. Well, I think at the end of World War I, uh, the Allied powers were triumphant, and the other powers, the central powers, had basically been prostrated, were crippled. And, in fact, even Russia was completely destroyed by the turmoil of the communist revolution in 1917. So really, um, the United States could turn back to whatever we were doing, which was having a wonderful party during the 1920s. Uh, after the Second World War, things were fundamentally different, basically because of the atomic bomb. And 
the United States and Great Britain in 1945 had a monopoly on the atomic bomb, but and and everybody understood that the atomic bomb was a game changer to use a stereotype because for the first time mankind really had a weapon that could totally destroy a country and so we had that power but it quickly became apparent that the Soviet Union even though it was badly crippled by the Second World War retained a huge military, and within three years or four years, thanks basically to espionage, basically thanks to intelligence and Soviet penetrations of both the American and the British uh, Manhattan projects, uh, the Russians had stolen the secret of nuclear weapons and were able to have their own atomic weapons. And looking at that, looking at the threat that was now facing the United States from a nuclear-armed Soviet Union, I think focused everybody's mind. And that's another reason that we had this consensus that I talked about, where even Republicans and Democrats could all agree and they could not only agree that we needed a strong government, but that the United States was a force for good in the world. And everybody in the United States, including uh, businessmen, um, scientists, academics, the general public and Congress, all pretty much agreed on that. There was this remarkable consensus from say, 1947 or 8 or so, up until the early 1960s. It was kind of a golden age for the United States, not only the post-war boom, but a general era of good feeling and uh, agreement about what the strategy of the United States should be. Right, absolutely. The time when we often refer to as um, a period of consensus politics in the 19th. The good old days. Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. there is this consensus that there should be some sort of new, more permanent um, type of intelligence. And so let's talk a little bit about what that new thing looks like and how it was set up. So first you, and you already mentioned a little bit, the title of your book and refers to the Missouri gang. Uh, so you mentioned a little bit why uh, you, you brought that into the title, but who are these guys and who are the people who are um, setting up this new intelligence apparatus? Basically the people who are doing this are the people who fought and won the second world war. It was this generation of leaders, um, and in, in many ways, you know, everybody calls them the greatest generation, but some of these people like uh, General Marshall, Admiral Nimitz, Admiral Leahy, um, Truman himself for that matter, these were all people who had really fought in a global war, and they understood the stakes, and they understood how important it was that the United States be prepared for the future. So when you talk about what 
happened immediately after the war uh, as quickly as we recognized that we were still facing an existential threat, uh, no longer from the Nazis and the Japanese Empire, but now from the Soviet Union. Um, there was a there was an agreement that we had to modernize not really just our intelligence activities, but our national security apparatus and structure overall. And basically what went on in the first couple of years after the Second World War was a reorganization of what people call the national security state. And that was including things like the creation of a Department of Defense, the creation of the United States Air Force, the creation of a National Security Council, which was made up of the senior leadership of the government, basically the president, vice president, secretary of state, and the new secretary of defense. And these were the people who would sit together here in Washington and reach agreement, reach consensus on what the national strategy should be. And, oh, by the way, in just a few little pages in this long law that was passed in 1947, the National Security Act, oh, by the way, you've got this little tiny excerpt slipped in there about how you're going to have a central intelligence agency. And that central organization was basically a reaction to the dysfunction and the disorganization and the rivalries that had led in some ways to Pearl Harbor. Remember all these guys remembered vividly Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor to them was kind of like 9-11 was to us. Everybody could remember the bombs dropping on the battleships the same way everybody today remembers the airplanes flying into the World Trade Center. So they all knew the cost of dysfunction. And what they were trying to do after the Second World War was make sure that the United States had a structure and organizations like the military and the CIA that could prevent these kinds of terrible attacks in the future. And even though we did have a World Trade Center, we still had gone basically for decades and we successfully fought and won the Cold War using this structure, a structure that had come out of the Second World War. So once they set up the this initial agency, what were some of the challenges facing them, and in particular facing someone like um, Helen Cotter, the first director? Yeah. Well, again, it was deja vu all over again, because he faced exactly the same kind of problems that William Donovan had faced in 1941 and 42, when Roosevelt asked him to create the Office of Strategic Service. Basically, the CIA is the 
the uh, descendant of the OSS. And the OSS, in many ways, was modeled on the British model of a wartime intelligence organization, with one major exception. And the exception that Donovan created, and that in some ways is almost unique among national intelligence services, is that Donovan added a analytic or an academic or a scholarly component to intelligence. Remember, at the beginning of our conversation, I talked about the goal of intelligence being to understand. And who better to understand what's going on in the world than scholars? And so the first group that Donovan assembled were the scholars, the research and analysis component of the OSS. And that carried over into the CIA as well. So you basically have a group of very smart, very well-educated, very sophisticated scholars who were experts in the global issues that we had to deal with. And then, of course, if you're going to do a secret activities to steal secrets, then you need um, espionage officers or collectors. And during the Second World War, you also needed what we now call covert action or special operations people, because we were literally fighting a, uh, a global war. And so we needed secret warriors as well as secret intelligence collectors and secret analysts. So all of these components, the analysts, the espionage collectors, and the uh, covert action operators were all part first of the OSS and then of the CIA. And in a lot of ways, that makes the CIA unique in the world. There are very few other intelligence organizations that combine all those components and all those functions and missions in a single organization. And do you think having that kind of combination, that kind of um, unique bringing together of so many different aspects of um, intelligence gathering has been successful? Did it pose particular problems for Donovan and or um, Hill and Cotter in setting things up and getting things working? Well, it led to jealousy among the other institutions and other organizations that felt like he was encroaching on their turf. And this was true of Donovan. It was true of Helen Cotter. And it's basically been true of every director since. And even though I end my story in 1950, uh, it's, it's, clear today, too, that um, the structure that they put together wasn't perfect by any means. In fact, there's a professor in California named Amy Zeigert, whose book is called Flawed by Design, which uh, posits that the uh, intelligence structure that was put together in 1947 was a compromise and it wasn't a very successful one because we had other P3 
people who had interests at stake. You know, you had uh, the Army, you had the Navy, you had the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and you had the State Department, all who, all of whom felt that they should be the leaders or that their uh, responsibilities should be the dominant ones or the predominant ones. And what Roosevelt had tried to do with Donovan in 1941 was to say, okay, I want you to be the coordinator. In fact, his first title was coordinator of information. And in 1945, 46, when Truman had his first intelligence advisor, and that's Sidney Sowers, another Missourian. He called him the director of central intelligence. Again, he was supposed to be the guy who would pull everything together to coordinate it and to organize it. And, of course, the Army didn't want that. The Navy didn't want that. The State Department didn't want that. And the um, FBI didn't want that. Nobody else wanted it. So there's this constant theme of sniping that's going on and, and infighting, uh, basically inside Washington, but it has an effect outside as well. And if I could step forward about 40 years and editorialize a bit, Please do. after, after 9-11, where we had, uh, a disaster sort of on the order of Pearl Harbor. What was the first thing that Congress looked to do? It was to reorganize the intelligence structure because the director of central intelligence up until that time, and there'd been a director for 59 years at that point, he wasn't able to actually exercise leadership over all of the resources of the intelligence community. And by intelligence community, I'm not just talking about the Army and the Navy. I mean, today we've got 16 or 17 different intelligence organizations. Uh, and they, they uh, range from huge ones like the Central Intelligence Agency or the National Security Agency or the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency or the National Reconnaissance Office. These are all organizations that a lot of people have never even heard of, but they're hugely important. And their directors are all very, very powerful. And if you don't have a single authority who can exercise leadership and impose discipline on these organizations, it's very difficult to really present a united uh, judgment to the National Security Council for action by the president and his senior advisors. And we could never do that because the DCIs were never strong enough. The Defense Department, which basically has the vast majority of intelligence resources, was never willing to subordinate itself to the Director of Central Intelligence. So what happened in, in 2005, after 9-11? Um, 
the consensus is, well, we need a new centralizing authority. And the DCIs have never had, the directors of central intelligence have never had the authority that they could really exercise uh, influence outside the CIA. So what we'll do is we'll create a new position and we'll call this guy the director of national intelligence. And he will not be within the CIA, but he will be over all of these organizations. And that'll make everything better because then he will be able to exercise control and make sure that everybody's marching in the same direction. And the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, said, not so fast. These guys in NSA and NGA and NRO and the military intelligence authorities, they all work for me. And I have basically 80 to 85 percent of the budget, and I have 80 to 85 percent of all of the people and all of the resources, and I'm going to be their manager, not the DNI. And guess who won? So this <laughs> challenge remains. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the new directors who have tried to exercise authority, one of them, an admiral by the name of Dennis Blair, uh, said, well, I'm supposed to be the director of national intelligence, and I'm supposed to be the president's senior advisor. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the one who decides who's going to be the senior intelligence representative in foreign countries. And traditionally, the man who made that decision was always the director of the CIA, because the CIA has always had the responsibility for foreign espionage and for relations with foreign countries. But Dennis Blair said, well, I'm going to make that decision. And guess how long that lasted? Uh, Leon Panetta, who was the director of the CIA at that point, went to the president and said, no, I'm going to continue to be the man who designates my officers overseas, and I'm going to make that decision, not Dennis Blair. And Dennis Blair lost. So, you know, we, we have a, a structure which in some ways, as Amy Seigert said, has all of the same rivalries and internal um, debates that have gone on since the 1940s. And do you think there's there's hope for change there? Well, you know, in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of a crisis, everybody uh, starts to cooperate better. And I will have to say that in my experience as an intelligence officer in the 1990s, especially on issues like terrorism or when you have wars going on, as we do now, uh, everybody tends to cooperate. People are really legitimately trying to do the best thing for the country. 
And I think that's one of the lessons from these men. And they were all men who created the National Intelligence Establishment in the 1940s. They're all trying to do the best they can. So you have to ascribe admirable motives to these people. And you have to assume that in most cases, they're trying to do the best they can for the country. And when at the beginning of our chat, I talked about misunderstandings and suspicion and hostility, um, there's a lot of that in the public today because there's a lot of uh, misinformation or disinformation about what it is really that the intelligence organizations are trying to do. And that's not to sugarcoat uh, abuses. Uh, certainly there were abuses in the 1940s uh, during the time of the OSS and in the early years of the CIA. But you have to understand what's motivating these people and what's motivating those of us who choose to be in this business is our desire to defend our country and our way of life and to help the president and his leadership team make the best, best possible decisions by giving him the clearest picture we can of the truth and what is really happening overseas to help him understand that's the whole responsibility we have to help the leadership understand so i wanted to ask kind of following along with that why you think the hostility and misunderstandings continue from a, a public sphere standpoint um do you think there's a possibility of um, intelligence agencies getting more information out about what they're trying to do? Or does that run counter to what they're trying to do? Or are there possible solutions? I mean, clearly, your book is one, um, you know, effort at a possible solution to shedding more light on uh, the more positive sides, so to speak, or the um, kind of, in, in some ways, the more mundane side of, of what's happening and why it is really, really necessary. Um, but why is that hostility continued and what kind of um, solutions are there for that? Well, the consensus that we had up until the 1960s, basically, about in Washington and in the country, not only among leaders, but also among citizens, was that the people running the country were good people trying to do the best they could. Now, I am not a social historian, so I can't tell you what changed or why it changed, but I can tell you here we're what now at the 70th anniversary or what 50th anniversary. We're at the 70th anniversary of the CIA, but we're at the 50th anniversary of 1968. And I lived through 1968 and the mood of the country changed dramatically and it hasn't gotten any better. If you see um, popular culture, you see movies like The Post, 
which talks about uh, the Pentagon Papers and about the uh, shock and uh, unhappiness and discord in the United States when it became clear that not everybody in uh, the government was being completely honest with people uh, about important issues like Vietnam, for example. You know, we've we've gotten to the point where there's not much trust. And we've also gotten to the point where things have gotten so polarized that people have retreated to their own corners and unlike Truman and his Republican colleagues in the 1940s, nobody can agree on what facts are anymore. So I'm not particularly hopeful uh, that that's going to change anytime soon. Um, I hope it will, but I don't know. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, So I did want to ask, kind of circling back a little bit, a question about the Missouri gang aspect. So a lot of these people are from Missouri. Of course, Truman himself is from Missouri. And in a way that's um, quite different than a lot of other moments in Washington, where there tends to be a lot of, you know, bureaucrats and, and elites and officials who are from, you know, the East Coast or from elite schools or all those kinds of things. So I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about um, how that came to be and if there wasn't any particular effect on the fact that this was sort of a Midwestern band of folks putting together uh, this new agency and new apparatus. Well, actually, the East Coast Mafia was much more powerful in those days uh, than it is today. And, you know, one of the nicknames for the OSS the Office of Strategic Service was oh so social because it was supposedly all of these Ivy League guys. And in fact, most of the academics who came into the OSS were from the Ivy League. William Langer was from Harvard. Uh, Sherman Kent was from Yale. So, uh, you know, Alan Dulles was from a very famous uh, Northeastern family. Um, they really were entrenched in, particularly in places like the State Department, uh, but also in uh, the general government. So um, Truman was, was, and of course Roosevelt was very patrician and came from a, a very old line family. So um The great equalizer, in a lot of ways, was the Second World War and the fact that you had such a huge infusion of people from all walks of life and not only men but women for the first time in large numbers getting involved in the government. Uh, there's a new book about a uh, new book out called Code Girls about the women cryptanalysts who were working for the Army and Navy during the Second World War. Well, up until that point, women didn't have any roles, any significant roles in government, and now they did. And not only as clerks and typists, but using their brain power. So. You're, you're getting 
a leveling, a kind of a egalitarian uh, infusion into the government for the first time uh, in the 1940s. And, uh, you know, the son of a mailman from uh, St. Louis could go on to become the first director of the CIA, uh, working alongside a prosperous businessman from St. Louis, Sidney Sowers, um, or Clark Clifford, whose father worked for a railroad. He was a, a St. Louis lawyer. Larry Houston, who was the first uh, lawyer of first the OSS and then the CIA, his dad was the chancellor of Washington University in St. Louis. So you, you're getting all these folks together, uh, basically on the, the, the same team, and they're all working together. And the Missouri gang was just a happy coincidence of history. These people didn't know each other before the war, uh, most of them. And they wouldn't have worked together had they not been thrown into the same task. Um, so the Missouri gang was in, in a lot of ways a happy accident. It's not the same way as Lyndon Johnson, when he became president, had all these Texas buddies, or Jimmy Carter had his Georgia mafia. You know, uh, Truman, Truman's Missouri gang was not that. Mm -hmm. It's more emblematic of changes. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And a democratization. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, well, we've talked quite a bit about your book, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to talk a little bit about your research and writing. So could you tell me a little bit about doing the research for this book? Um, as uh, we talked a little bit about before we started the interview, certainly uh, doing research on the CIA is rather uh, infamously, at least among historians, difficult to do. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about what kind of research you did and maybe the process of doing that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. But but let me say something, uh, sort of circle back a little bit. Um, the United States intelligence establishment today, I think, is the most open of any intelligence organization in the world. And it has been that way for, for some time now. Uh, there is a lot of public information available uh, on the American intelligence community, particularly the CIA. Now, other organizations like uh, the National Security Agency or uh, the satellite and uh, agencies like NGA and NRO have been more secretive, but that's not been true, say, in the last 20 years of the CIA. And not only uh, popular scholars like uh, Tom Powers or Evan Thomas, people like that, uh, Benjamin Weiser, have been able to write um, uh, quite good books about the agency. Uh, the agency's had a journal for a good long time. Um, it has a web presence. It posts a lot of material online. So there is a huge body of work available for uh, researchers and for historians to look at. Uh, the problem 
arises uh, in two areas. One, when you go back to the very early years of the community, when you're talking about the kind of research I did, uh, very few of these early people wrote memoirs or kept much records. Um, it was very, very frustrating to find material on either Hill and Cotter or Sowers. And I really had to be a pioneer uh, in that regard, particularly with Hill and Cotter. Now, he had been a naval attache before the Second World War. And the big thing that intelligence officers do is they write reports. But nobody had looked at these reports ever. And so I spent a lot of time in the National Archives reading attaché reports from the 1930s from uh, France. And uh, some some of the reviewers who have looked at my book say, yeah, that's the big contribution you've made, because nobody had plowed that ground before. And it was really, really tough to do. Um, I wrote my dissertation back in the 1960s on the Hitler Youth. So I was dealing with Nazi records. And those, of course, were largely destroyed at the end of the war, or else they were captured in a very jumbled and disorganized way, thrown into boxes, micro-filmed uh, randomly, and then just left in a giant pile of garbage for historians to try to plow through. And in a lot of ways, those attaché reports are in the same state. I wasn't able to find uh, a lot of things that I was looking for, but I found enough to really give me, I think, some insights into Hill and Goddard's early years. Uh, Sowers didn't write much either, hasn't been able to find out much about him. The only guy who really uh, wrote a lot was Admiral Leahy, who was uh, ambassador to Vichy, France, and then later he was uh, President Roosevelt and then President Truman's um, chief of staff to the commander-in-chief. And Leahy kept that position after the war as well. And he wrote a daily diary, and he wrote his memoirs. Uh, another uh, good source was memoirs by an American diplomat in Paris named Robert Murphy, who was in Paris when uh, the Nazis invaded. Uh, but aside from that, there's not a lot out there. And the early research internal research by CIA historians who were writing classified histories was more focused on organizational history. They were interested in the bureaucracy, and I wasn't really interested in that. Uh, but these, these early histories have now been declassified, and I used them where I found them useful, but... Um, there wasn't a lot of material there. And one of the things I'm, I'm most regretful of was that it didn't get more inside guys like Sowers and Helen Cotter. And of course, they're now dead. So, you know, it's, it's really too late. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, your writing in your capacity as a historian, as opposed to your capacity as someone who's worked for the CIA. Um, but since you mentioned the uh, CIA historians um, who were writing classified histories, I was wondering if it, it does pose any particular challenges for you as someone who has worked um, at the CIA and then is writing about them. Does that or did that pose any particular um challenges or steps or, or whatnot um, for you to be able to write this history? Well, anybody who has ever had a security clearance, particularly with the CIA, takes on a lifetime obligation to uh, submit anything you want to write on the subject of intelligence for review by the CIA. And you will notice on the front piece of my book is a little blurb to the effect that the CIA has reviewed what I've written uh, to determine that there was no classified information in it. That wasn't really a problem writing about the 1930s and 40s and and early 50s uh, because so much of that material has been declassified. Now, you still have to submit uh, your manuscript for review, but it was very easy and very fast for me. It was not by any means a difficult process. Okay. Wonderful. Um, well, again, yeah. thank you um, so much for telling us so much about your book. Um, and, you know, we normally on New Books in History talk a little bit about um, what's coming next or, or what you're up to now, um, now that you have the book out. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I'm up to now is vast relief that the book is done. <laughs> That's, good. I mean, That's good. You know, it, 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 when you're working full time, as I was when I wrote this thing, uh, I was a full time consultant for the agency uh, when I wrote the book. So basically, it was written on the kitchen counter uh, in the evenings and weekends. Uh, and I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore uh, because. Being a historian was not my full-time job. Um, I I do think there's more to be said specifically about the early years of the CIA, uh, the first, say, three years up until about 1950. And I've sort of been thinking about uh, turning turning a uh, sort of an expanded version into a journal article. I did write a journal article about Helen Cotter's uh, military experience. So his experience as an attache and then his experience after Pearl Harbor. And I'm thinking maybe uh, you could do a kind of a six crises about the struggles that he had trying to put the CIA together because uh, currently he doesn't have a very good reputation among those very few scholars who've ever heard of him uh, because he had a lot of enemies in Washington. A lot of people didn't want the CIA to succeed, didn't want him to succeed. And so they sort of spread the word around that he was dumb or that he was ineffectual or uh, that he didn't know what he was doing, or that he was a weak leader. And it's the kind of smear campaigns that 
have become much more uh, endemic now in public life. But uh, he suffered from that as well uh, back in the late 40s. So I'd, I'd sort of like to do a little more to rehabilitate him, but not in a book-length thing, because frankly, there's just not enough source material out there for that. Well, that sounds great. I'll look forward to reading it. Yeah, well, if it ever gets written. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Christine. You're doing you're doing a wonderful service to the uh, the discipline, and I'm I'm grateful for it. Thank you.